Hey everybody, welcome to Twig 42. You have myself, Joe Kim, and as well as Eric Angry Crest and Adam <laughs> Mario Telfer with us. Uh, unfortunately, we, we again are without uh, Mishka Jet Set Katkoff. He is off uh, in the, I don't know, south of Spain or Rome or somewhere. Uh, still on vacation, but um, today we're going to cover three articles only. Um, but the first is what video game company should Disney buy that isn't Activision Blizzard from Forbes? The second is Pokemon Masters Hands-On. Trainer battles get real-time co-op play on iOS and Android from VentureBeat. And finally, Facebook migrating instant games away from Messenger from Gamasutra. And ahead of jumping into the articles, guys, what's, what's going on? Well, we just got back from Las Vegas for our big tournament, uh, basketball tournament. And the coolest part of the trip was that uh, one of our best players' brother played on a team that played against LeBron James' son. So LeBron James' son is in seventh grade, and he is an amazing basketball player. He is likely going to be in the NBA, ultimately. And they played against them, and they got their ass handed to them. But how cool is it to say that you actually played so competitively that you were playing with LeBron James' son? And LeBron is in the stands and he's doing dunks during halftime and all this other stuff. So, so cool, you know. And I, I said this before probably is that you know, this basketball thing is probably one of the best things about being a parent for me so far. So it's really cool and fun to watch and a really good environment and really competitive and really fun. So that was my big weekend. Cool. So you actually watched LeBron do all those dunks? Because I, I saw it on YouTube. It was all over YouTube. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I didn't actually go to the, that particular game. We had we had a conflict because we had our own game, but um, but we did have people that went that we that were part of Bay City, and uh, and it was it was amazing. I mean, there were tons of people in the crowd, and they had this guy literally. He's in seventh grade. The dude is like six ten, right? He's taller than LeBron. Right, he's in seventh grade. It's is nutty, dude. Like, it, it is it is a completely different animal altogether. So, their biggest guy was like six five. So they had no chance. So, but again, seventh grade basketball. Got <laughs> <laughs> anything interesting right. on your side? Yeah, not too much interesting on my side. I'm headed to to Toronto to Canada uh, on Wednesday, so I'm looking forward to my vacation. Uh, not as exciting as south of Spain. Um, <laughs> But uh, no, I'm looking forward to go to a cabin in the woods and not touch the internet for a while. Just play, right. just play on my Switch. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then one, uh, a couple of updates. Uh, we did have a few comments with respect to the previous Twig episode when we talked about PUBG Mobile. And uh, a couple of points from Damien Kim from Facebook is that uh, Google Play actually in China only has 1% share, but is otherwise irrelevant. And there are probably four to five other major stores in China. And you know these are all basically sort of mobile device manufacturers, telcos, but the biggest store is owned by Tencent. So it kind of makes sense how, uh, how in China, Tencent is able to push PUBG Mobile. And he, you know, he also did confirm that PUBG Mobile is developed and operated by Tencent and not Bluehole. Um, so just kind of some comments about that. And I also wanted to just, uh, you know, a little more self-promotion, but Adam, um, myself, and uh, Jeff Witt, uh, we did a video uh, deconstructing AFK Arena. So 
if any of you guys are interested in AFK Arena, uh, by the time you guys are listening to this, I'll have published that video on YouTube. So just check out Game Makers on YouTube. And finally, a quick news flash, but uh, there was a blog post released by Superdata and that, that talked about Teamfight Tactics and how Teamfight Tactics actually beat out Fortnite for top viewership after sort of continued hype and online competitions from what's called Twitch Rivals. And so for the period of July 15th through 21st, Teamfight Tactics actually did become sort of number one on Twitch, although just checking the recent numbers, it's, it's now, however, back to third behind Fortnite and League of Legends. So, Eric, did you have a couple of comments on that? No, I just, I, okay. the, my, my thing with this is that, uh, you know, uh, Twitch viewership does not re mean revenue, right? So Teamfight right. Tactics and those type of games are really not generating a lot of revenue. Um, so, I, you know, popularity is one thing, but like it's important for them to figure out the monetization design, which I don't think they figured out yet on any of these games for that matter. But uh, I'll defer to Adam. Yeah, uh, I think we've covered it in the previous twigs uh, where so far, at least on the mobile side, when we can actually look at the revenue, it looks pretty stark in terms of how much revenue each one of these games is making on a per player basis. Um, and it looks like it's mostly restricted just to cosmetics, which I think makes sense while it's still in this land grab situation. But at the same time, the just cosmetics in this kind of chessboard like cosmetic setting uh, might not generate enough revenue. Right. So should we jump into the first article, Eric? Sure, sure. Um, this is an article by uh, Paul Tassi. It says, what video game company should buy Disney? Or sorry, should Disney buy? And that isn't Activision Blizzard. So basically, Paul Tassi is a writer for Forbes, and he kind of focuses on the video game space. I, I actually find his stuff pretty good. Sometimes, though, I think in, in this case, he tackles subjects that are a little bit out of his wheelhouse. Um, but he's a gamer, and he seems pretty, you know, impartial guy and you know, unlike every other media outlet these days. Um, so anyway, I do like him. I do follow him. Um, the article kind of starts by quoting uh, this guy, Nick Lacouris, I think is how you pronounce it, who told Bloomberg that he thinks a good time for Disney to buy Activision. Of course, he's an investor in both. So any transaction would probably be pretty beneficial to him. So this is like another type of uh, typical ploy to kind of support his book of investments. And it's not really you know, above board to some degree. It's just kind of just pushing his own book and his investments. So, um, and then Paul then starts to talk about, oh, what are the various ideas for acquisition candidates? You know, EA, Ubisoft, Epic, Nintendo, Take-Two, Square Enix, and Bungie. So you have really no idea how many times I get answered this question, you know, in a more broad context, right? Generally, who is going to acquire EA and Activision, you know, as a, an investment thesis to some degree as to why these companies should be owned? Um, you know, and I'm going to move away from like picking on consultants and start picking on investment bankers, of which I was one at one point in time. Um, but it's so easy to put together a PowerPoint to present to Disney, AT&T, Viacom, that a logical expansion of their media empire is to be interactive, right? I mean, an undergrad could put together a presentation and together in 30 minutes. And I'm sure that Goldman and Morgan Stanley, you know, build 120 page decks on a regular basis, you know, about the you know, strategic value uh, the size of the market, the synergies of owning interactive, but the realities of it and the reality and the uniqueness of the business make it a very ch challenging exercise for a big publisher, or sorry, a big media conglomerate to own um, and be successful with interactive. So I think Paul is fundamentally asking the wrong question. It's not a question of what they should buy, but why, or even if, if 
they could buy these companies. You know, Disney and many of the other guys, big guys, have tried numerous times to launch gaming companies. Lucas Interactive, the original Fox Interactive, Hasbro Interactive, Disney Interactive. You know what the common denominator on all these ventures into gaming? They all failed miserably, right? And now there are many reasons that these things happen, and I'm just going to really highlight some of the high-level ones. But there's some fundamental problems about these big conglomerates owning, you know, interactive divisions and or trying to acquire, you know, big interactive gaming companies. So the first one, and this is a little bit uh, exaggerated, but no one really wants to work at Disney that wants to work in gaming, right? That's like a kind of a fundamental problem, right? If you're, if you're a game developer, you want to work at a game company and not part of Disney. And part of the reason why will be illustrated bef- below, but... Um, you know, a lot of the companies that, that Disney acquired over its life to build up their interactive just hated it. You know, and I heard many anecdotal stories about how terrible it was to work at Disney. And to protect the innocent, I'm going to refrain from specifics, but but there are just many instances in which they just ma- mismanaged their acquisitions over, over, over the years. And one of the fundamental problems with these companies is all the political power in these companies is centered around the movie makers and the IP owners. And gaming is kind of an afterthought from like these absolute like egomaniacs. Oh, I knew I was going to mispronounce this one. <laughs> the, the egomaniacs that kind of uh, that own these type of franchises, you know, like Star, Star Wars, for instance, there's too much conflict, you know, to get things done with this internally owned IP. Um, and it's really impossible. And, and as everyone knows over the years, it's like getting approvals from these license holders is very challenging. And the other thing is the uh, priorities are always for the movies is kind of one of the big issues. Um, the funds are just not allocated to games as much as to movie and TV, which are kind of the heroes, right? And the big example of this is Lucas, and I'm not gonna go into this too much, but fundamentally, Lucas basically saw the success of Call of Duty. This is anecdotal, obviously. Lucas saw the su- success of Call of Duty and says, we gotta make a game like that, right? Which is a valid strategy, no doubt. But the amount of money that's required to build a game like that is in the stratosphere. So you give them the budget of what some fifty million dollars or something, and they keep and and you give them two years to do it, which is which is is, all, is you know never happens because you have to build up the team, et cetera, et cetera. And so what Lucas kept doing is pulling money away over over those years to build this. Um, uh, oh my God, what was the game called? But anyway, the point is is because new projects come up on the TV side, they keep divesting away from the games, oh, Force Unleashed, sorry. This is the Force Unleashed saga, right? And so they kept pulling money away and then they get delayed and then they get frustrated and then the priorities are just never there. And so it, it was a disaster from the get-go. Even though they actually created a great game, if they had like six more months of polish, that game would have been just phenomenal, right? And the, and the sequel was even worse because they just didn't invest the money and time in making that game. Um, the fourth reason is that, you know, game companies are... Fe- fiercely independent. They don't want to be part of a broader org because they think a lot of the value associated with how games are developed, you know, will be will be obliterated by going to these big companies. So I remember back in the 90s when or in 2000 when I worked with Larry Probst, he said, over my dead body, will we be acquired by a big company, right? Because that will destroy me. And Ch- Larry is still chairman of the board at EA, right? And so I don't think all these companies have this kind of fierce independence, but um, but the majority of them, I think, do. Um, and I get the last reason this may be somewhat controversial, but there's very, very many exceptions to this rule. But fundamentally, it's very chal- challenging to apply movie book TV license to interactive. I don't think there's there have been some success stories, but most of the biggest g- games in the industry, like, you know, Call of Duty um, and, uh, you know, 
all of Sony's properties, for instance, um, are new IPs and they're specifically geared to that platform. So this kind of speaks to more of the risks of building games um, around you know big media IP and how challenging that can be um, from the consumer. So, so generally, most of the studios, with the exception of Warner Brothers, have pretty much abandoned aspirations of having an interactive as in their arsenal of entertainment. We, f- we see Fox giving it a second try, but it's likely going to be sold. And NBC has some aspirations, but I don't think that will ever be successful. So we have they basically all have set up like licensing teams to license their their big IPs to the best you know strategic fits uh, for whatever platform they're going after. You know, Warner Brothers seems to be a bit of a hybrid, you know, with internal teams and licensing. And again, on the surface, they seem to be doing pretty well. Um, and they also have hired some pretty big folks uh, from the industry to help lead their effort. And I don't mean Adam. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> so what the other companies, uh, so, are, so what about the other companies? So EA, I think, is fiercely independent. You know, Ubisoft is French and therefore impossible to acquire given uh, government approval requirements and other rules. Epic is owned by Tencent, so that's a no. Uh, Square and Nintendo are Japanese, so it's also impossible to give them the same reasons as Ubisoft. There's Bungie, there's no effing way they're going to give up uh, their freedom after their experience with their previous overlord. And, and also they have a big direct investment from Netties. So that so all the ones that he mentioned are just well, the majority of the ones that, that that Paul mentions are just completely not possible, right? So it's it, it wasn't really a well thought out piece to my, in my estimation, right? So that leaves Take Two and Activision, um, and I don't really think Activision provides any real benefit uh, or breadth of content. And again, maybe the sixth reason that I should have mentioned is that the biggest challenge too is that they have no extra teams to build games for their next media overlord right so disney or or whatever else so it's like they are very limited in their teams and their ability to actually execute against any ips outside of what they're already doing you know and then again take two i don't think they're that as broad and not as interesting to these big big uh conglomerates um and uh and again they uh, just to, to put this point home is that they are part of the strategy and the synergy that any of these investment banker douches want to want to put together is that you acquire the interactive studios and they leverage the licenses and IPs that in your stable and build games and experiences directly rather than licensing out. Again, the fundamental problem is that all these studios are optimized against a very small, uh, limited skew plan, and they don't have extra teams that they can just allocate towards Star Wars or allocate towards you know Harry Potter or whatever. And so it, there is no real synergy there, right? There's They're not going to like EA is not going to take their Madden team and put them on a Star Wars game, right? They need that extra capacity, which they just don't have anymore. It just doesn't work. You know, Ubisoft is probably an exception to that rule because they probably do have enough teams in order to do that. But anyway, they're not for sale. Um, so anyway, I think this has kind of led everyone to have the same strategy, right? Is that basically these big IP holders are all setting up their own like licensing arms and licensing content to the highest bidder um, and doing it in a way that's smart and sometimes in a way that's not so smart, but that's a whole other issue. And this takes the risk of game development kind of out of the picture, right? Because they're just getting minimum guarantees for all these different projects and they don't have to worry about games that can't come to fruition or are unsuccessful. And I think that's probably the approach we're going to go going forward. So the answer to all my investment guys who ask me this question is, I don't think any of these big guys are talking about acquiring EA or Activision or any of these other big studios. Um, 
I just think there's way too much inherent risk on on acquiring these these studios and no one really wants to work for Disney that works in interactive. So what do you think, Mr. Adam? <laughs> You're so hot and cold on me. <laughs> Man, you gotta sweat you gotta swim in your lane, dude. <laughs> one week you love me next week just ripping me apart all right um yeah i have to tread lightly here just because i work for wb and i can't really discuss a lot when it comes to like entertainment stuff i think i can really get into trouble in terms of the pr and the legal whip um but overall my feedback is this article does i agree with eric a lot in terms of it this article feels a lot like clickbait Disney has a lot of options and a lot of options outside of games of what to buy. So I think if we're going to do this kind of listing of who Disney is likely to acquire, I would be prioritizing a lot of just general entertainment IP space to take advantage of their actual core competency and what they've actually been doing strategically. Um, if you look at stuff like their recent acquisition of Fox, um, as well as just their history in games, they've gone back and forth in games long enough. I don't really see them trying it again. I could be surprised, but that's that's me. I'm assuming they're more looking at entertainment IP. Um, but personally, like if I'm going to speculate and get into trouble, I'd love to see Nintendo be acquired by Disney. Um, I think about the movies and the IP that they have um, going through generations. I think Disney could do a lot with that. Um, but that will never happen. Yeah, I mean, but I can that, No, that's, that's, yeah, of course, <laughs> that makes total sense, but that's never going to effing happen. Period. Yeah, I can dream. Okay. I can dream. Um, JK? Cool. Um, for me, I, I'll have to agree with Eric that Disney doesn't really add anything to the gaming side. In fact, it's probably negative. And they've been moving away from game publishing and sort of, you know, what, what uh, Eric is calling interactive for a reason. I probably won't go into too much more detail on the other stuff that Eric talked about just because I'm recently removed from being a part of a big IP company and I still have a lot of friends in various IP companies. So I'll just leave it at that. But so for me, I think the, um, the more interesting aspect of this to me is where Disney would be able to add more value and, um, you know, and, and have the, the ability to push a lot of these really awesome gaming IPs into, into films. And so from the same perspective that Adam, that you're taking of what, what would it be cool to see Disney buy without, you know, without getting into the practical reality of whether it's possible or not. But for me, I'd love to see Disney actually buy Ubisoft and make, you know, the division movies or vice versa, where we see the division, the division team, massive entertainment, make a star Wars or Marvel game, um, you know, rather than let's say avatar. And, and, and in that case, it'd be more just about access to the IP. I, I would say similar things about square square Enix, where it'd be awesome to have, you know, films around a lot of the IPs that they have. Um, but, you know, again, based on Eric's points about how difficult those transactions would be or how realistic they are, um, you know, maybe the best bet for Disney is to just wait for the, the slow decline of Blizzard and, and try and instead of acquiring Activision, trying to do more of a carve out of, of Blizzard where, you know, clearly we've got some of the best, best IPs in the world uh, under, under Blizzard there. That, so you you think about the entire gaming IP space, and you want to make a division movie? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see that. Man. <laughs> Wait, have you even played Division? I've, I've I've watched the trailers and I bought the book, so I've I've actually been reading the stories. No, no, I was talking to Adam yeah. because actually, no, 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 no I, I played them. I played the both games. The story oh. is not good. Oh come on! But you could make a movie out of that. I like that's pretty yeah. cool. 
yeah, yeah. but like the, okay the but, concept is awesome but okay that's that is not the best gaming ip <laughs> for a movie right like think of god of war okay like that's already <laughs> sizably better than division post-apocalyptic and plus like disney making a division movie yeah that's know, okay but anyway, to, to, I'm gonna, to close this thing out, right? Iger, <laughs> in a conference call with investors a few quarters ago, I don't know exactly when, he basically was asked this question. I mean, is there a strategy in which you want to acquire gaming companies? And Iger said, no, we're happy with our licensing program as it is. We're not interested in expanding into interactive. I mean, that, that was kind of the, the little gist of what he's saying. So again, this article, you're right. I think it's, it is kind of clickbait, right? It's just basically just throw something out there. I, I don't like it so much. It's kind of misinformation. So anyway, let's move on to the next one. All right, article two, Pokemon Masters hands-on. Trainer battles get real-time co-op play on iOS and Android. And basically what the, the situation here is that DNA has been working on Pokemon Masters for a long time. And more info as well as game, gameplay information has now been revealed. And so we now know that the title will be coming out this summer on both iOS and Android. Uh, you know, and just a little bit more background in terms of DNA, they do have previous experience with other Nintendo licensed titles, such as Super, Super Mario Run, Fire Emblem Heroes, and Animal Crossing Pocket Camp. And just to give the audience a little bit more context in terms of the performance of those games, just pulling some numbers from Century Tower, we know that Super Mario Run has done incredibly well from a downloads perspective with about 223 million downloads, uh, you know, life to date, and 51 million in net revenue. Fire Emblem Heroes has done about 16 million downloads, but on the revenue side has done a significantly better with 415 million in net revenue. Again, according to Century Tower estimates. And then Animal Crossing has done... 30 million downloads and 69 million in net revenue. Um, you know, interestingly, as, as I was looking at the data for these games, just looking at Fire Emblem, it looks like the download volume is something like three to 5,000 per day against an over $26 in, in RP or average, average revenue per install, or as Central Tower calls it, RPD revenue per download. To me, that suggests there is likely little to no UA being done against Fire Emblem. So DNA guys, give me a call. I'll I'll, I'll help find you guys. You <laughs> guy, just 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 let me know. But uh, it definitely seems like there is some opportunity in terms of doing more user acquisition and marketing against that game. Uh, also, DNA is is currently working on Mario Kart Tour. Uh, but from a gameplay perspective, the way it's currently looking like is that there will be sync pairs in this game, which means a combo of a trainer and a Pokemon, and so you take this combo and you play with these combos and that the game will likely have a pretty significant PVE single player campaign experience with currently about 13 chapters of content. And in terms of uh, the co-op side, the article did mention real-time co-op play. What that's going to look like is it's going to be 3v3, but it'll be three players playing co-op against three computer-generated AI and each player will control three sync pairs. So the way that it'll kind of play out is you'll have nine trainers and nine Pokemon per side. And finally, this game will be real-time and not turn-based. So that's basically the overview of what we know in terms of Pokemon Masters. Adam, what's your take? I, I know you're a big Nintendo fan, so I'm sure you've got a lot to say here. Yeah, as we've covered enough kind of Nintendo games in the past, 
Um, yeah, I, I don't think we have a lot of confidence <laughs> when it comes to Nintendo games coming out on on mobile. Um, and in, even when it's included with Dina, just because if I think about Super Mario Run, Animal Crossing, and Mario Kart Tour on that list, everything pretty much other than Fire Emblems um, doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence. And I think Mario Kart Tour is the one where I'm still very, very hesitant on that design in that economy. Um, but uh, I'm also assuming that this is going through the Pokemon company, not through Nintendo, right? Because this is Pokemon's IP. So like Pokemon Go, I wouldn't see this as a direct to actual Nintendo's financials. Um, but um, like my, my quick take on the, the design and what I've seen, uh, I think the change towards 3v3 versus 1v1 and real-time gameplay is actually a very good change uh, for mobile and a good change from the Pokemon formula. Um, we'll actually see how this translates into this like co-op, PvP, whatever gameplay. Um, just because I think nine Pokemon per side all running in real time, that can be quite chaotic. Uh, so we'll see how that actually translates into. Um, but with 3v3, as we've seen with the entire CCRPG space, um, having you know a bit more things to collect um, is, is always better. Um, so my overall hope, of course, is that this will be much more Fire Emblem Heroes than Pokemon Shuffle, um, than Mario Kart Tour. Um, but yeah, I think it really comes down to how they actually design their monetization, how they design their engagement. Um, I'm assuming this will be gotcha. This will be loot boxes just because Mary Kart Tour includes loot boxes. So then it really comes down to how deep that is, how lasting that chase will be. Um, and it looks like there'll be premium currency that's key to upgrading characters, but it's kind of hard to say based on this article. There's still very, very light discussions around this. Um, engagement looks like it's going to be driven by a strong story campaign, um, which I think is great for the IP. Um, but I would be hoping that they also have enough, say, side modes uh, to actually be flexible enough to, to kind of withstand the impact of the gotcha. Um, I think from the AFK Arena Deconstruct that uh, JK, you're posting today, uh, we talk a lot about AFK's different modes and how important they are to actually driving that economy. And I think um, with this game in particular, if they lean too heavily into a like linear story campaign, that can be quite um, painful for that gotcha component. Um, yeah, making sure that you're catching unlucky players from plateauing and making sure there's enough side modes for high-level spenders. Um, but then again, this is there's not a lot of info yet. Um, says it's coming out this summer, so I'm looking forward to that. Eric? Yeah, I'm going to... Well, first thing, I'm going to push back a little bit on... Uh, uh, Joseph on his Fire Emblem stuff. So, I mean, the Fire Emblem game is just super hardcore, not only in terms of IP, but also in terms of uh, gameplay, right? So I don't know how many more people they can actually bring into that game that would be profitable. I imagine they got into a situation in which they're probably spending way too much money on acquisition. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't look like they're spending anything. I mean, that level of volume for that IP seems like it's all organic. Right, but I'm just saying they're, they've already got their golden cohort that's spending insane amounts of money. I just doubt there's any more incremental people out there that want to play that stupid game, you know? It's possible. I mean, clearly, you know, they, uh, it's not like, you know, DNA is a novice company, but I, I am surprised at, at the volume for that game, given, given that level of RP. I mean, it seem, it's, theoretically, it seems like they should be able to, to, to bring in a few more. But again, I, the way I looked at it before is that like majority of the revenue, I think is like 70, 75 percent of revenue is coming from Japan. Right. So it's like on that uh, yeah, download. Yeah. So it probably got the downloads being a Nintendo game, but not necessarily that people were necessarily interested in staying on it. Yeah, but I'll just, yeah. Um, 
so for this game, look, uh, I would I was looking more towards what the Pokemon Company have done and not Nintendo, right? So Pokemon, there's Pokemon Go, Pokemon Duo, Camp Pokemon, Pokemon Shuffle, Pokemon Quest, Pokemon TCG, Pokemon Rumble Wash. I mean, geez, I mean, how many Pokemon games can you have in a freaking store, right? Um, and so the only real game that's made any money is Pokemon Go, you know, I mean, which is 1.6 billion, right? According to Sensor Tower. Um, and the next biggest game is Pokemon Duel, which is 11 million, which is ergo a fail, right? So, um, you know, P- Pokemon Masters, I, see, I'm not a big Pokemon fan, so I, I really can't speak to this intelligently, but like Pokemon Masters and, and maybe maybe Mr. Adam, who's a Nintendo fanboy, can help correct me here. It looks more aligned with the traditional Pokemon game, right? But I kind of have to speculate here a little bit that they may be unwilling to put like the classic Pokemon style games on mobile phones. You know, with Pokemon is coming on the Switch this holiday, they may have some restrictions here, you know? I, I don't really know for sure, but why wouldn't you put like a 3DS style Pokemon game on mobile, right? It should seem to work, right? Maybe Nintendo won't allow it that only like the traditional Pokemon game can be played on Nintendo's platform, you know, but I'm not sure. Um, but if perhaps, you know, they designed a Pokemon style, you know, traditional style Pokemon game from 3DS with more deep monetization models, you know, that maybe they can, you know, build something that scales, right? And not have like, you know, 10 games on the store that don't make any money, you know, but I don't know. I got a feeling that there is some restriction here, but I'm, I'm not quite sure. And, but would you agree that this game is a little bit more closer resembling a traditional Pokemon game or is that not the case? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it is. It is definitely. Um, I think though, the weirdness here is the, the, or the changes are the pairing of the trainer and the Pokemon mm-hmm. as well as the move to a three V three. Okay. Uh, versus 1v1 and i as i said like i, I think those changes are both good uh, as well as the real time um for for the co-op play um so i think those changes are good the, i i my sense is like anybody who's trying to do pokemon like as that core concept um and trying to launch it as a mobile game right like that that's a premium game i i don't know how you actually build a, an effective monetization model i think uh what was it uh, big pixel um actually did that a while back with uh, Pocket Morty's with the Rick and Morty uh, IP. I know it's different. It's very different, very different situation, but um, that's very, very difficult to, to, to monetize. And I would say this is a better fit for the IP and a better economy for the IQ. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, when I first saw this game, I'm like, holy, this, this is my, something that might take off because the other games just don't like the, the TCG is the worst, right? Like no one plays the card game, you know I mean? I mean, but it, it could be great. It's. It, I think that's more of an execution problem, right? Like, like that's just oh, dude. Pokemon TCG is like it, the rules. It's, it's complicated, right? That's not. That's not it a is, casual I mean, game. The, the concept of a you know kind of Pokemon battle game, you know, card battle game, makes sense. Like, there's right. successful product on the market. So what I'm saying is, it's like the execution for them to like if they had the right people and the right team. That could be a very successful game. That could be on par with Hearthstone and UVO Duel Links. This is my point. Yeah, but, but you're getting into the same IP dilemma that I think we've spoken about before with like Warhammer and Dungeons and Dragons and some of these core IPs like uh, Wizards of the Coast stuff, right? Where you're going to create a game that basically is designed for the casual audience. You're going to piss off your core, you know, card battle card game people, and you're going to make something that's too complicated for, you know, the casual. So it's like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And this, yeah. And so, like, 
Yeah, you're right. If they could create something like a Hearthstone with Pokemon, sure, but I, that's never going to happen, right? Because it could if it if could they, it if, should. They, if they got the right team. No, no, I know it should, yeah. it could, but the reality is that Pokemon is Pokemon, right? The rule sets yeah. are already set and established, and so you'll piss off your cork Pokemon fans if you start dumbing it down, right? Anyway, whatever. This is a whole other issue about <laughs> IP that don't seem to keep in mind. Although I did talk to the Wizards of the Coast guy, and he's like, "Yeah, you don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> what else is he going to say right I, we've dealt with this issue I, when i was at ea when i was at kabam like always right warhammer what a great license but it is so hardcore that license that no one it's impossible to leverage right and there's not been really one successful warhammer game i think for the, for, primarily for that reason and, and the rts was probably the most successful because um because that can you can actually build that core game for the core audience and they'll accept it. But every other execution has been kind of flawed, right? Anyway, yep. that's a whole other thing. All right, next one. Yeah, um, so I'm taking this one. Facebook migrating instant games away from Messenger. Uh, this article was written by Gama Sutra, but I think it was also posted across the, the internet, also in things like Pocket Gamer. Um, the summary of this is that Facebook is in the process of moving instant games, um, the chat-based games um, from Messenger, actually away from the Messenger client and uh, moving them to a games tab um, within Facebook to create a more central gaming experience. Um, the effort is in to actually simplify Messenger, and this has actually been going on for quite a while, um, just because Facebook is actually noticing people are jumping off of Messenger for simpler chat apps that focus less on, say, chatting with games and chatting with companies and more actually engaging with your friends. Um, the big read here, though, is that Facebook is effectively killing, removing instant games by moving it away from Messenger. This is the ecosystem is actually meant to actually drive engagement within. Um, the whole point of chat apps is to, of course, have it within the chat app. Um, and instant games market overall seems like it's pretty much dead. Um, this hits close to home for me um, because I actually started up a company about two years ago called Chatterbox Games, uh, which focused on, on Facebook Instant and chat apps. Um, so, yeah, I was definitely pitching within this area. I felt like there was some potential here um, for, for some disruption in the mobile space. At the time, there was a lot of promise with the platform with a few curated titles. Um, they actually showed a lot of growth. There was some pretty um, multi-million MAU numbers. Um, growth numbers, organic numbers in the tens of thousands. Um, just a lot of early problems with kind of figuring out retention and waiting on Facebook to actually figure out how to open up in-app purchases and user acquisition. Um, so kind of common early signs that uh, of, of platform growth getting the kinks out. Um, but chat gaming overall seemed like a natural evolution of mobile gaming. We're moving games towards where engagement of players actually has moved to, where players are spending a lot less time downloading new mobile games and actually spending a lot more time within these chat apps. Um, so, of course, nice signals. Uh, the chat ecosystems now were in the billions of MAU, uh, which was actually equivalent to kind of early day Facebook gaming and, of course, early day mobile. Um, as well as kind of those east to west trends. Um, so things like rise of WeChat as the platform for apps in China, uh, that people would actually rather use their chat app to actually get things done and engage with friends. Um, so these were all the signals. Um, that was a great pitch, but it also made some pretty 
big assumptions. First being that Facebook would actually learn from its bumps from launching that original Facebook gaming, uh, Facebook uh, social, um, and that Facebook can actually find a way to play nice with Google and Apple um, just because they're actually launching an app store within the app stores. Uh, in both of these cases, the assumptions were actually wrong. Um, on the first side, uh, actually playing nice with Google and Apple, um, this is actually clearly an issue right from the start. Uh, many of the reasons why things like in-app purchasing and user acquisition was so slow uh, was things like Apple putting a lot of restrictions on Facebook about what it could and what it couldn't do. Um, so in the case of things like in-app purchasing, this was actually a major problem. I think it only really rolled out on Google. I'm not even sure if it rolled out on Apple, um, but it actually went to the point that Facebook actually wouldn't take any cut from in-app purchases uh, because of the 30% cut coming from Apple and Google were already uh, baked in. On top of this, Facebook couldn't adjust their storefront on iOS to actually make it into an actual app store. It needed to stay just a list on iOS, which was actually quite surprising. Um, this actually really escalated the discoverability problems dramatically. Uh, it just meant um, that the market actually turned into a winner-takes-all kind of marketplace very, very quickly, um, which you think about mobile in about those early years with the mobile from, say, 2008 to 2010, um, and just how quickly those, those ranks were changing um, and how much, say, quality really, really mattered. And here, it was very much an early movers uh, market. In terms of learning from their mistakes, Facebook made a big mistake when they actually opened up the platform too early um, before it actually made it into a viable platform. Um, so I think it was March 2018 um, or 20, yeah, 2018 when they actually opened up the platform so that anyone could submit and play games on the platform. Um, and there's already signs that retention, uh, of course, was still a major issue. Um, and that actually being high on the app store or on their list was actually very, very important for your retention um, since you actually couldn't install your games. Um, so the only way that players could find your games or re come back to your games was to use that list, uh, which meant that the platform was still pretty weak at driving that retention. Regardless, they actually opened up those floodgates and waves of titles came in with no curation, and that just burned too many developers. Um, especially larger developers. Any larger devs testing out the space quickly divested, and even the leaders in the space actually moved on to new platforms rather than doubling down on the market. Um, so overall, the Facebook instant market since then has kind of struggled to rebuild that confidence in serious developers. Um, and the few pubs that have managed to make some money, um, that would be like FRVR, Game Closure with uh, Everwing, Soft Games, um, but as Facebook backs away from instant games, these HTML5 developers will actually have to find new platforms uh, to work. So this story really kind of marks the death of instant games. And of course, major questions about chat gaming, HTML5 gaming uh, in the West in general. Well, I think you've kind of covered it all. <laughs> funny thing is I investigated this like, like six months ago because I think someone was asking me about this. Um, you know, what, what are the future potential of success for the Facebook's games? And what, what was clear to me from the get-go was that, you know, Facebook clearly had some like WeChat app envy or something, and they really wanted, we, you know, Messenger to be something like WeChat. But WeChat in China is like their interface to the world. Like they're buying things and doing all kinds of other things, social stuff, whatever. It's like all part of this one app and the, and the, and the retention is there. And they have built in all these things that Facebook didn't in order to make it more sticky and, and, and easier to find these experiences and to keep playing, I suppose. Um, 
So I think probably what Facebook realized, not only did they not actually put in the features that were required to keep players engaged, but also that Messenger is not even used that way, you know, the way that people use WeChat. And so it's going to be hard to uh, maintain that audience. You know what I'm saying? So, um, and I, you know, I have a general like kind of viewpoint on this stuff that like, because I'm dealing with more of the public and the big companies, like all these type of tchotchke games, like the hyper casual messenger, or I don't know if anyone remembers this back in the day, the shockwave style games. Um, you know, when you have like the really low barrier of entry and you can make a game for a lot less money than, than a traditional game, et cetera, there's ultimately going to be no differentiations of the products, right? It's kind of a race to the bottom. And frankly, I think customers just get bored of this stuff. You know, that's why I'm not so bullish on, um, you know, these hyper casual nonsense, but, um, so I don't know, it's not a scalable strategy and it's certainly in my view, and it's not like something that's that interesting from the perspective of these big game companies. So it's not really as interesting to me, I suppose. What do you think, Joseph? Uh, so for me, yeah, I don't have much more to add besides that. I think the Facebook gaming hub is really weird, at least in its current incarnation. And in my opinion, pretty poor execution. It's, you know, I don't know anyone who really uh, uses it or is there and as a gamer and someone working in the games industry, I should really want to use that tab. But for me, it's more of an annoyance than anything else. We'll see what integrating instant there, whether that helps or not, but I suspect not. And kind of like Adam, I'm pretty just kind of negative, you know, it's like Facebook just historically has, you know, has done stuff in gaming and then they just kind of seem like they didn't care. And then, you know, developers are often left holding the bag. So I, I think that's, um, it's been a little bit of an unfortunate experience, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and predict that Facebook removes the gaming tab in less than a year from now. So yeah, not, not too positive on that. Uh, and yeah, I think that's basically it. Unless there's any other remaining comments, I believe we are done. Yep. Uh, last podcast next week and then I'm out for two weeks. Um, and uh, then we'll see you back on the flip side when school starts. Right. Yeah. And so probably just a final update is that coming up to the Deconstructor Fund podcast, we're actually going to have a publisher series coming out where we talk to a number of mobile game publishers. So stay tuned for that. And then we're also going to start bringing on some guest hosts as both Adam and Eric are on vacation and who, who knows whether Mishka is still going to be on vacation or not. So uh, we are going to be bringing on a few other folks to kind of come in and uh, guest host. So that'll be pretty exciting. And yeah, that's it. So catch you all later. Bye. Bye. Bye.